This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life, and the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day, and I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. Dory 1, this is Fireteam Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Welcome back to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, episode 34. Today's episode is dedicated to United States Marine Sergeant Jordan Blake Roberts. This story is about the other side of him taking his own life on November 17th, 2017. He left behind a wife and a three-year-old daughter, Liliana. And this story is with Sarah Roberts. She She shares with us the story of what that pain was like on the other side of having him take his own life, what the life was like before he took his own life. And we dive into some of the things that veterans face, active duty and post transition on how to come home and what was holding him back and who he was and what his personality was and what kind of person he was and what kind of dad he was. And we quickly learned through this episode that if we want to take our own life in the idea that it's going to end the pain and that our family will be better without us, the realization after listening to this episode is the pain doesn't stop. The pain just continues on through the ones that remember us. And Sarah talks about how that this broke her in more ways than she can explain into words on our episode, but that if she can relive that hell by telling her story and hopefully prevent someone else from going through this hell again, then that is a hell worth walking through. And we dive into a lot of different areas. Sarah Sarah opens wide open on this episode, and I know this is going to hit a chord. It really hit a chord with me as I was recording it, as I was re-listening to it, getting it ready for publishing. And it is just a heartbreaking story to know that a little girl will never get to hold her dad again and get that hug. And this story is just unbelievable almost because he took his own life while his daughter was sleeping eight feet away in the other room. And it was about midnight that night. And it's just, it's a hard detail and story to hear, but it's one that needs to be heard. And it's one that reminds us as dads, the honor we have to be dad and that it's our obligation to live a legacy worthy of the sacrifices of the dads that didn't come home and to recognize that we are a father and that our family needs us even if we can't see it. Without further ado, let's get right into this episode with Sarah Roberts. Today's guest is 32-year-old mom and lives in eastern North Carolina by the beach. She's a Marine veteran widow and an almost with an almost five-year-old. She is working through the loss of her late husband's suicide. She is now engaged to a wonderful man who served with their first husband, and they work from home designing custom rings and making home decors. Sarah Roberts, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. I really, I first read your article on military.com, as so many other people have, and it really just resonated with me, and it got me crying as I was reading about it and thinking about your daughter, and I was thinking about you and just what you had to go through. Can you go ahead and unpack a little bit what the backstory is and what happened for our listeners that may not have saw it on the military.com? How far back do you want me to go? Let's just maybe go leading up to the the, first, the second separation. Okay. So um, we got married in 2013. And um, not long after that, I think it was about um, five days after we got married, he left for a two-week uh, ship training op. He was home for two weeks and then he left for eight or nine months and um, he came home. We had some issues that arose over the the deployment, um, 
but we conceived, had a beautiful baby girl in December of 2014. Um, and then some some issues arose, but we worked through them and we moved and we bought a beautiful house and everything was as good as can be, but, um, some, some demons started to arise rather quickly in the end. Um, Jordan was, uh, very angry. That's how he dealt with his PTSD. He was very frustrated all the time. Um, there was a lot of yelling that would go on in the house, uh, a lot of blame that was placed. And, you know, both of us, it, we would go back and forth with it. Um, when you're kind of put into a position, you react, and that goes both ways. Um, but it became a very unhealthy situation. So um, it actually happened in front of my daughter. I had a panic attack, and my daughter came running up the stairs and said, you know, daddy, stop, stop yelling at mommy. And, uh, I, I realized in that moment that I needed to, to leave. Um, you, I never stopped loving him, but it was a, it was an experience that I didn't want my daughter to witness. Mm -hmm. So I left and, um, we were both very angry during the separation. Uh, I wasn't far, I was 30 minutes away. Um, but what happened was uh, the 13th of November, um, there was a lot of up and downs. And um, I actually saw him that day for a few hours. And then we spent the rest of the evening arguing. And there was about an hour worth of, worth of silence between the two of us. Um, and he sent me a suicide note at midnight on the 14th of November. And, um, according to the police department and the coroner's office, um, he was dead before I was finished reading the message. I can only imagine what the, those moments were like, were you awake at that time or did the text message wake you up? I was, I was actually, I was on the phone and, um, when I read the message, I said that I needed to go and I called, I called him seven times. And uh, something, I'd call it div divine intervention. Um, it's happened a few times, but this time was very strong. Uh, after the seventh phone call, I called the next door neighbor who, um, I guess, really took it seriously. I, I don't know what transpired between the two of them while I was gone, but he took it very seriously and came over to the house and broke the door down and found him. And in that, in the meantime, while I was getting ready to make the drive, um, was when he broke down the door. And so I was getting in my car after I heard him scream, call 911. Well, he, he, he broke down the door while he was on the phone with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where was your daughter during this? She was in the house. Um, your house he, or his house? His house. Um, he did it in the master bedroom, and her bedroom was um, literally eight feet across the hall. So she probably didn't know anything was wrong right away until someone came breaking home the door? She's a pretty heavy sleeper. Um, I have shot hand, handguns before. Um, he actually fired two shots. His... Um, come to find out through some third party. Um, he actually attempted suicide a few days before and the gun malfunctioned. So um, he did a test shot through the, the back side of the house um, before, he, um, before he took his life. So there were two shots that went off and I call it an act of God that she didn't wake up, but I won't really know if she woke up or not. Mm -hmm. I've heard stories from close friends who've had, there was a dad who his wife committed suicide and there was, he wrote a book about this and there was a moment when he had to come home and his daughters came downstairs and said, mommy's not coming home anymore. And I can only imagine those moments and what your moments were and just that raw emotion of sadness that you have to walk through and 
somehow wake up the next day and take another step. Yeah, that's a very, um, it was a very hard time. Um, I vividly remember uh, driving into the neighborhood uh, and seeing the the street was lined with um, police officers and um, ambulances and the coroner's office. Um, there were police outside the house. There, you could see the shadows in the in the master bedroom from the outside. And uh, I actually had to park at the far end of the property, which is about a half acre. And I ran to the to the driveway um, where I was told by the officer that he he was deceased. Um, after Im- immediately after that moment, you it's an automatic kick in the guts. You, you kind of lose your breath. You kind of lose your footing. Mm-hmm. Um, I collapsed to the ground and I screamed. Um, and that only lasted for a moment because my immediate next response was, where's my child? Mm-hmm. Um, I immediately went into mom mode. I need to know where my child is. I need to protect my child. Um, but thankfully the, um, I should, unfortunately, it was both the next door neighbor and his wife that found, that found him, but they both ushered her out of the house so that she didn't, um, she didn't see anything. Mm-hmm. So the only memory she knows or holds on to is the morning that her dad no longer was there. I don't think that morning she really understood. Um, How old was she? She was a month shy of three. So just enough to know, like, to ask the question, where's daddy every day? Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, it's hard to explain to a three-year-old. Um, and, and it's traumatic. You know, I've, I've had to have her in therapy to try to help her deal with whatever emotions a young child deals mm-hmm. with, with the trauma of, you know, losing losing a parent and their emotions are already unregulated and when they have such strong ones and i can imagine anger is one of those as well because they get they they don't know why they're angry but ultimately they're angry because their uh, dad's no longer there yeah and trying to figure out how to to process that mm-hmm. yeah she's i'm really fortunate in the sense that um Jordan and I were both very happy children, and uh, my mom and his mom will both tell you that she holds um, holds those characteristics. She's a very happy child, um, but um, it'll rip your heart right out when she starts crying for her daddy, and you you all you can say is that daddy's in heaven and he can't come back. You can't mm-hmm. explain why they're too young. She's too young to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just sort of do what you have to do to try to explain it. Mm-hmm. Is there an example that, or a way that you've explained it that seems to have been more effective? Um, when he first passed away, um, it was a it was a very emotional time for me. I was in shock. And I quite frankly don't know what I told her. Um, in fact, I don't remember a full two months after his, his death. I remember the day of his death like it was yesterday. I remember, um, I remember the drive. I actually have PTSD from the drive. I've been clinically diagnosed with it just simply from driving. If I drive home uh, at night when it's dark out, stars are everywhere, um, it it flares it. The anxiety gets all high and, um, that's been a a lot to work on. But during that time, you just, you don't really know how you put your foot in front of the other. And what I remember saying to her was that daddy will always be in her heart. Um, and that daddy's in heaven and daddy's with Jesus. Um, and she didn't really ask questions. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't rem- I don't remember her asking where is Daddy, um, but I remember almost hammering it into her so that she didn't really have to ask. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that it was a thought on always on her mind that or, or she was it was just something that was she was familiar with the daddy wasn't coming home no she even during our separation we it was every day um when when she was here with him um you know we would call at night and and we would both he would be with her i would be on the phone we would be telling her good night we were both always there um so I think I think she was confused, but I I just think she was too young to really to really get it. Um, and I can imagine the the anger issues that he had almost tr- were transferred to you because I'm sure there was a lot of anger towards the situation that you had, and you probably it was a hard emotion to deal with. I can imagine because being angry over someone killing themselves seems like you should be more sad, but you're also angry that they've created this conflict in your heart that you're now trying to, to work through. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of anger once, um, once the shock wore off. Um, the, the first initial, I don't even know if you'd call it anger, but it was, how could you do this to us? I, I don't think I really asked that in an angry way. Um, it was just more of a disbelief. Um, but there have been times since he, since he passed away that, um, she'll, she'll do something that I wish he could see. And for a moment I'm sad and then not experience those things with her. Mm Mm-hmm. The the daughter dad or dance the first of everything that when she goes out into the world to find her boyfriend and future husband that that model that women look to 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 go out into the world and seek isn't there. Luckily enough, you have uh, someone new that can help be that person because I've there's a. There's a book that I read maybe three years ago now. It was called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. And it taught me a very important lesson that something as simple as hugging our daughters, there's like a 60% less chance that they'll have sex by the age of 12 because that need or that feeling of love and connectedness to their father, if they don't get that, they will go find it from the first person willing to give it. And it's a simple something as simple as hugging can have such a greater impact on your daughter. And knowing that that, original connection isn't there i can only imagine the your your future husband has some big shoes to fill and to to help uh her into the world yeah he he's really good with her um he's been a wonderful a wonderful stepdad um but we it's it's harder for me i think than for for my daughter um because I still hold on to some of that anger. Uh, I was a daddy's girl all my life. I'm still a daddy's girl. Um, And I look back and I remember that my dad walked me down the aisle and I remember how special that was for me. When you looked in his Um, eyes and saw that proud dad looking back at you and the woman that you became. Yeah, it's... Yeah, and it's a comforting it's a comforting look that that you get from, from your dad and and I'm not taking away from Michael because he's doing he's doing an incredible job and um he loves he loves my daughter daughter loves him um but f- for me the mom will remember how great a father he was with her which makes it so much harder to let go of the anger because I remember him running around on the ground with her. I remember her laughing to an extent that has, it's taken her almost these two years to get back to. Mm-hmm. Um, Where she can feel a feeling of joy for something. I mean, it's all a work. It, it's all a work in progress. We, yeah. Yeah, but she, you know, Michael's doing a wonderful job with her, and and um, I think he 
he feels a very great responsibility because he and Jordan served together back in um, 2011 um, in Afghanistan. And um, when we first when we first started talking as friends, I remember him telling me that he felt um, a very great responsibility to protect us, um, to protect his friend's daughter, his friend's widow. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that has turned into something much greater. Um, but he's he's filling those shoes. Very well. When you think, because I can only imagine how much second guessing you you've been doing. When you think about leading up to that, is there anything that you'd want to say to a wife that might be listening to this for wisdom that you've learned on the other side of, of this, something that you might've done differently. Um, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. Um, that's probably one of the, the biggest things that I struggle with is, um, had I known that, that day that he was at my house that we were arguing, had I known that that was the last day, that last time I would ever see him alive, I can't say that I, I would have let him leave. I would have made him stay. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a lot of guilt um, that I feel that maybe, um, and I'm working through it, but there's still a lot of guilt there that, um, you know, maybe if we had worked a little harder at, at trying to work through these issues, um, I find that looking, reflecting back on it, um, when his PTSD really really came forward and was, um, was really prominent in our marriage. Um, it caused both of us to change. And, um, we were two very different people than we were when, um, when we met, when we were in love, when we got married, when we had our daughter. Um, and looking back, you have to question did did you do everything in your power to try to mend that so that you can grow back together mm-hmm. um and unfortunately he he took his life before we we had that opportunity mm-hmm. even before we, you had it's like fin- finality of even saying we're going from separation to divorce right I mean, we were, we were only three weeks separate. I was, I was only out of the house for two weeks. I was still staying in the house for about a week after I had said that I was done, that I needed, I needed to leave. Um, and that's, that's one big thing that I struggle with too, is that I never was able to mourn the loss of my marriage because it all just just died all of it everything he died Mm. the marriage died it the the family unit whether we were together or apart we were still a family he was still the father of my daughter and and we were always going to be in each other's lives and that was all just gone in an instant Mm -hmm. and uh you look back and you just you wonder you know maybe maybe there was something else that we could have done to try to I don't know, re relearn each other or um, try it in a different way. Um, one of the biggest struggles that I think we had um, was that he, he did not want help. Um, we tried marriage counseling once before and he was convinced that it wasn't working. So when our second separation came about, he wanted nothing to do with it. He said, therapy doesn't do anything. And, um, they can't tell me how to, um, I don't know how to, how to fix myself. They don't know me. Mm. Um, I'm not broken. I'm not broken. Exactly. Yeah. 
did he ever did he ever have moments where he did open up say the vault of really what he was feeling even maybe months or years in the previous arguments of like talking about a demon that he might be facing inside no never to me um i remember having a conversation with his mom and i i guess he told some things to his mom um but never to me and and i couldn't tell you why maybe he didn't want to trouble me um did he always portray himself as the strong yes. hero within the marriage that the yes the one that has to have it all together has to have it all together has to be be strong and stoic I'm not sure yeah. if you know what know what that word is but that's always the has it all together emotionally controlled and and that's part of the military template that gets applied to us that there's this poster board Marine and being a Marine, I even have more of it because I didn't fit the poster board Marine. And so I always had like an identity crisis inside. And when you try to be what people expect you to be, that also just, even if you didn't have PTSD trying to be someone version of a template that maybe you weren't inside when you, when you first met together, would you have described him in the same way as very stoic and that he grew to that way or he was always very proud individual? Uh, he was always very proud, but when we first got together, he was very cocky. Um, mm -hmm. He was, he was kind of arrogant. He kind of um, thought the world revolved around him, um, which I didn't like actually. If, uh, if, if I hadn't have, and this is going to suck for me to say, if I hadn't have found him so attractive, I probably wouldn't have gone to see him again. Mm -hmm. um, that's how, that's how cocky he was, but um, he just sort of never left. And uh, he had a really infectious laugh and um, a really good sense of humor. And um, I don't want to say he like had a plan, but he, he made it clear that he had it all together. And um that what did he used to tell me he he used to when I asked him what he was looking for he asked he said that um he was looking for someone to tame the animal um like tame the beast and and looking back I don't I don't know if that was him saying like hey I'm a little bit nuts like in a in a silly kind of way or if he was talking about um those deeper um, those deeper and darker secrets that he never were really driving his, his yeah. ego. Mm -hmm. I've recently come to reflect on ego as almost a survival neck mechanism for our brain. That it's something we use when, whenever there's a side of us that we feel weakened or we don't feel strong enough in our ego is generally always inflated in that one particular category to protect us because our brain 2000 years ago, it was very good at protecting us and keeping us alive. Right now without lions and tigers and bears to kill us every night, the, the ego is almost can be insatuated in any category of life because there's lots of areas where we don't feel uh, fulfilled. And mm -hmm. that's often where you'll create a persona to be someone to fill a gap that you feel inside. And it's something I've been working on that I often will work for personal growth, wherever my ego is the strongest, that's usually an area that I, I need to work in when you, when he would before, when he was in, let's say the, the good times, when he was, would laugh and talk with or play with his daughter, where would he have described your life going in 20 years? What kind of life would he have wanted? Um, that's hard to say because we were going through a lot of changes. Um, not long after my daughter was born. Um, you know, we had the, we had the dream that we were going to, um, he was going to stay in for 20 years. He was third generation military. Um, we actually did a, an ancestry that showed that he had on one side of his family, someone who fought for the North and another who fought in the South during the, um, the civil war. Um, so military runs in his blood. Um, he wanted to serve his 20 years and I don't think he really paid much attention to anything else after that. And when he attempted to lat move, um, 
he was going to work, he was going to leave um, the 0311 field and go into uh, whatever, whatever MOS it is that works in the, in the brig. Um, that was what he wanted to do. And it was because he was starting to have some pain in, in his ankles. So he had to get some physicals done and that showed that he had some damage to his ankles that required surgery. Um, one ankle was a, was an injury that he had obtained in one of his Afghan deployments, but because that ankle was damaged, he was overcompensating on the other ankle, which caused damage to that ankle. So he had three ankle surgeries over the course of um, a year or a year and a half. And, and all that happened before he was out of the military. So it seemed for him, I think to him overnight, his dreams were kind of shattered. Um, his dream to be a career Marine and, and he loved being a Marine was just kind of taken from him. And I think that that had, um, that had a real negative input on, on his, on his views of, of how life was going to go. And, I think maybe his ego kind of played into that to, to maybe make it seem like he had it all together for, for us, whether it was for me or for his parents or, um, or my parents, even, um, he still wanted everyone to think that he had it all together, but, um, I think he was terrified inside. I think that ego was, um, was a, a real good mask for what he, what he was feeling. Because a lot of things were changing. When, so. so he was transitioned out. He was no longer active duty when he killed himself. No, he had he had already been medically separated. Um, he was under. Uh, he went through the VA and he was um, 100% disabled through the VA at the time of his suicide. How many? How much time between separation and the suicide was there? I believe he got out. It. I don't remember the exact month that he got out, but it was about one year, about one year from his EAS to his suicide. What did he fill that time with? Did he use he that? Took a, he, he took advantage of the GI Bill. His, okay. hope, his hope was that um, he could, I'm, I'm going to be bluntly honest with you. He thought he could fix things and he couldn't. Um, he, uh, there have been a number of things that Michael, unfortunately, has had to kind of undo, uh, what Michael, what, uh, Jordan did to, to quote, fix it. Um, but he wanted to work with his hands. And, um, when all of this ankle stuff sort of came about, he kind of settled on the fact that he may have to get a desk job and he didn't really like that. Um, but one of the one of the things he did was he over he overdid school. Um, I went to school for nine years, and one of the first things that I told him was that, uh, yeah, the VA is going to pay you to to go to school. You know that's all well and great, but um, that's that's not a good reason to take the load that he was taking. I think he was taking six classes um, at the freshman level at the community college. And he very quickly became overwhelmed. Um, but he didn't want anybody to know that. I didn't know until after he died that he actually failed out of school. Um, I found a letter amongst his things after he passed away that the VA was, um, was not going to be paying um, for that semester. He had to pay that semester back or something because his, um, his grades were so low. There's a lot that hits me with that story that you just told, because when I got out of the Marine Corps, I got a job and I was going back to school. So I was using the GI Bill mm -hmm. and I was going for electrical engineering because I was a generator mechanic and I wanted to be an expert in electricity is where I did my day job. I worked on generators and I wanted to be an expert. And so I got through my associates it was stressful, but I got through it. It was fairly easy. It was just the general stuff. But then I got into the hard stuff, calculus, physics mm -hmm. and electronics and circuits. And I had three D pluses in a row and you might as well fail with the D plus because they don't carry over. 
You right. don't have to pay them back, but you essentially have to take the class again. And I hit rock bottom. And at that point, I dropped out of the College of Engineering. And I can relate to what you're probably not as severe as you're, I'm sure he was connected to his identity more than I did. But I remember that was my grass was going to get greener on the other side. And I had, I had put every one of my baskets, like I could wake up every day and go through the motions because just a mile ahead on the other side of that fence, it was the greenest pasture I could get to. And as long as I could get to that, and I still had like three years left before I dropped out and it was still such a long road and I was still going. And then when I dropped out, I was like, I got nothing. I've mm-hmm. just got a job. My daughter, my first daughter was born at that time. And it was a hard time trying to, to figure out, refigure out what I want to do when I grow up because I had really, and I want to say I was close to turning 30 when this happened, which I was also going through a midlife crisis because I didn't have any friends. And the biggest fear that I had when I turned 30 was that I was going to die at a later age, like 60 or 80. And no one was going to say any nice things there because I had a life that was empty and wasn't rich with people. And I can remember being so terrified in my heart that I was just terrified to be alone. And that transposed into my marriage of how I showed up there, being fearful as a dad. It wasn't, it was a scary place to be when, when you wrap your identity into something that you haven't even created yet. And then it falls apart because it's a, it's a long way down to bottom. And the one thing that I learned that helped me get back up was uh, I didn't learn this advice till later, but once I heard it, it made perfect sense. Like sometimes falling all the way to the bottom can be just what you need because you'll learn that there is a bottom that mm-hmm. you don't have to try to keep it all together because no matter how far you fall, literally, even if you literally fell off the roof, all you got to do is stand back up and you found out, okay, you just got to stand back up, brush it off and you can walk again. Like no matter how far you fall, you can still stand back up. And that was even financially, I've used that methodology. Once you hit rock bottom, you just realize you can stand back up and tomorrow is a new day and you can try again. But it sounds like your husband had his identity wrapped up in his military service. And I best heard it described that when you transition out, you go from Superman to Clark Kent and Mm -hmm. your husband loved being Superman to the point where it was the only uniform he wore at home as Clark Kent. It was almost like Clark Kent walk around with a Superman trying to say, Hey, I'm normal, but I'm still Superman. Mm -hmm. And when you take that off, you have nothing. You, you really don't know who you are. And the Marine, the Marine Corps and every branch of service just programs us to be one identity, but then it doesn't do any good job trying to reestablish our identity of, I'll often talk about our first transition. Like, the first transition was going into the Marine Corps. Like you had an identity before there was some version of you that was there before you went through this metaphors, metamorphosis transformation in the military. But when you come out on the other side, it's, it can be super lonely place. And it sounds like your husband was just scared to be found out. Yeah. What you, what you just said really, um, kind of, kind of cuts deep. Um, he he wouldn't say that he was Superman. He occasionally did, but he he, <laughs> he more liked to call himself the Hulk. Ah. <laughs> um, isn't who's who's the Hulk's alter ego? Uh, I don't know. I I, mean, I, I know the, I can say it in my head, but I can't say it in words. Doctor something. Doctor yeah, Doctor something. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll get we'll leave it at but, that. Yeah, um, yeah, he. His his whole identity was being a Marine. And um, when he was forced out, um, he didn't know, he didn't know who he was. Um, and when he finally came to the conclusion that, okay, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. Um, he put everything into that and he did it to the extent that it was too much. Um, and I think in the end, um, in his circumstance, everything was falling apart. Not only did he no longer have his Marine Corps, but in the very end, I'm talking the last, the last three weeks of his life, 
his family was falling apart, his marriage was falling apart, and his education, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but he knew that his education had just taken a dump too. So, and being alone, knowing all of those facts, um, I think was his rock bottom. And I think um, with his pride, he just didn't know how to stand back up. I think when he fell um, and hit the bottom, I think he, and this is, this is going to kind of, be crappy for me to say because it really did happen to him i think his ankles broke Mm -hmm. um and he couldn't stand back up that's a good metaphor though considering he had his ankles were repaired that it's and and he was a really physical guy i don't know if i if i mentioned that he was a very physical dude he he lived in the gym he was all about being buff and you know making sure that people knew that he was a power our house and and um that was another thing actually now that i'm thinking about it that he lost was he lost his health um his body was failing him his body and his mind then you you put all that together and all of that's going on in in the same time the same time span um yeah i think the best analogy i can come up with is that he he fell and broke his ankles on the way down and he just couldn't couldn't figure out how to stand back up there's something we talk about a lot in the podcast that dads, when we reach this point that when your wheel of life, your marriage, your finances, your dreams, your goals, you probably, you probably felt like a horrible father because he couldn't provide, even though in his eyes of his daughter, he was a hero and still mm-hmm. Hulk. Mm-hmm. All of those things collapse. There's nothing to hold you together and you literally just collapse. And it's, it's, it's like when you fall into a pit and the pit is just pitch black. And the only thing that gets you through that is someone throws you a rope. Mm-hmm. And that rope is generally a tribe of, of men in your life. And I've had been a part of a, a dad group on the internet for three years now where when I'm in my pit, uh, that's where I look for a rope for guys to hang it down because there's every, there's a guy at every stage of the mountain. There's some in the pit, there's some at the top, there's some that fall back in the pit. And it's just a cycle that we're always there and analogy with, with it being fit that I've always used and works in the Marine Corps. Cause that's where I learned the lesson is the Marine Corps just abused your back over and over. And mm-hmm. I came up with the joke that in the military, if you can't lift something, well, that just means you don't have enough Marines trying no matter how awkward, no matter how big, it doesn't matter whether you should have a fork truck to lift it. Well, you just need 10 guys in this. We can get it move. We're big, tough and muscle. And mm-hmm. I've equated that to life. Like, no matter how strong you are, there are things in life and you're, that you can't carry. And you're not meant to carry everything that life gives you. And he was carrying so much on his heart. Like you said, the weight just, everything collapsed. And without that rope, without having anybody else in his life to be that person, even this close friend that, that you're now engaged to, there's a world where those connections could have been something that if, if had he maybe not looked through you to find peace through PTSD, but just finding other dads and other men to do life with. And that's been my biggest game changer over the last few years is doing life together with other men at different stages of life and just learning, growing and failing together and just getting the words outside of your head. And it sounds like your husband is almost the perfect example of how I describe what happens leading up to this is that without getting these words outside of your head. And I often will do it either through a blog writing or a Facebook post or a message that I do to a friend to get these thoughts out. But when you don't get those thoughts out, the voice just gets louder and louder and louder until the point that it's so loud that it only has come to one conclusion and it's the only voice you can hear that your family and everybody would be better without you. And until you get that, that voice outside into a word, you don't start invalidating what that voice is trying to tell you to do. Unfortunately, in his situation, he did reach out. Um, There were two individuals that knew of his rock bottom, um, one of which took very seriously, um, but lived far away and 
talked him through what he could talk him through. And that was the day of his attempt, which was three days before his suicide, talked him out of it. Um, the other, he had gone to and said, take my guns. He said that I'm, I'm feeling suicidal, I'm feeling homicidal. Um, I need you to take my guns. And he wasn't taken seriously. And I think that, um, I think that also played a part that no one cared, that no one cared, but when the exact opposite was true, um, people, I'm a firm believer that like, if let's say that you're sick and you know that something's wrong, you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you that you're fine but you know that something's wrong. Do you take the doctor's word or do you go see another doctor? Um, he had a mountain of people that he could have reached out to. His biggest problem was that he was too prideful, that he didn't want, his biggest support was his family. Um, his mom his mom would have moved mountains for him. His aunt and uncle that lived very close by, they would have moved mountains for him. Um, but he didn't want to go to them because he didn't want them to think that he had failed. Um, that is one thing that resonates with me and it'll stay with me the rest of, it, the rest of my life. Is in his suicide, that's exactly what he told me was that he had failed. He had failed me and he had failed his daughter. And um, I would give anything to be able to tell him that he hadn't failed and try to help him stand back up. Mm -hmm. Even though we were going through a hard time, um, is, there is always a after the rain, after the storm. Um, he was so far into the hurricane that he couldn't see the end in sight he couldn't mm -hmm. see the rainbow i like what you said there and I've, I've heard it said a similar way where be the rainbow to someone's storm but oftentimes the storm like you said is so heavy and mm -hmm. i have to wonder where his fear of failure came from like because i've i've had a little bit of that where i'll be i was been a people pleaser almost all my life trying to be accepted and I'll do a lot of things out of my way to try to prove to other people that I'm good and that I'm enough. And I'm, I'm almost fearful of taking risk because of the failure, but mm -hmm. at the same time seeking that acceptance, like there's times at work or different parts of my life where deep down inside, as I look back now with a, a, a brighter lens to look through it, I realize I was really just, completing a project and then waiting for someone to walk up to me and say, Ben, I'm proud of you. Mm -hmm. And that often drives a lot of subconscious behavior to try to seek that because of growing up, I just never felt like I was enough for everybody. I was never accepted, never had friends. And all of those things created subroutines in my subconscious that kept trying to prove to the world that I, I was enough. And and I can only imagine the weight on your daughter's heart when you, when she's old enough to understand and you tell her what was went on and, and how, when she hears that her dad thinks that she's a failure, like how just the, the, the heaviness on her heart to carry through that, knowing that she, that her hero thought she was a failure, even though she was three and. No, he thought he had failed her. I know, but for her to find out that that's what he thought, like, I can't, oh, yeah. that just has to have some interflection for her when she's older for just trying to work through that. And um, if she, if your daughter was older, then it probably would have had more of an effect. Like she, she would have gone through like, what was I doing? Why didn't daddy love me? And Oh, believe me, all of those things have crossed through my mind. Um, I have told myself that I, I will, will not ever lie to her about what happened to her daddy. Um, I will always be age appropriate. 
Um, and I'll be mindful, like when she hits puberty, for example, that's probably not a detail that she needs to know at that, at that time. Um, but at the same time, me and the rest of my immediate tribe that was Jordan's tribe, Jordan's mom, Jordan's stepdad, Jordan's aunt and uncle, um, his sister, um, we get to tell her that daddy loved her. You know, mm. we, get, we get to to share the memories that we still have, even though she's probably not going to remember them as her own memories. You know, we can still, um, we can still, and we have pictures too, you know, we have, we have some videos of them um, when she was, when she was real little um, that we can share with her, but I'm, I'm not going to know until one day she comes busting down the door demanding, you know, needing to know what happened to her daddy and was it my fault? And um, I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to handle that. An idea that I've given to other dads that are often maybe sometimes separated through an ill-fated divorce that ended in unequal custody and maybe they're not being treated fairly is to start a Gmail account and not give the password, but know an email address that you can write to and to say what's on your heart in given moments of the time and year, and then share that email password with her when she's old enough. And if I don't know how well you're okay with writing about this or just in general writing, but I could see you writing about the memories and the, just the thoughts that you want her to remember later and just sending it to an email whenever you have something you want to get off in your heart that you want her to know about later about her father, either through a memory of when she was born or something that just pops up in your head. That could be a good way for her to digest all the things that you want to say, but you obviously can't go crazy in one conversation, but mm -hmm. maybe not remember when she's 18 or 16, all these granular details. And that actually uh, buggy episode that I had you listen to, she talked about how one of the very first things she started doing was writing down all of the things about her husband because she had an unborn child that she mm -hmm. wanted to, her, her, him to understand who he was. And those memories are only as fresh as the time that they happen. And every day after they get, um, especially as your mind probably just goes to want to protect yourself from these feelings, you may not be able to recall them as clearly. That could be something that helps her walk through this on her own because it's not something you have to do verbally. It's something you've been working on for 15 years as a, as a gift. Yeah. That's not something I, I thought of. That's a really good idea. What I have done is, is I actually have taken to writing. Um, I have a journal that I write in very frequently and I wrote in daily, if not multiple times a day uh, after his death, um, writing down whether it be memories or whether it just be thoughts of, you know, what I said, you know, the what ifs, the should, the could have was, and, um, but those are all things that I, I hope to share with her as well as, as well as pictures. I want to put together a, a really nice, um, photo album for her, um, so that she can see for herself that her daddy really loved her. Mm -hmm. I've heard a, a different story of a dad or a dad who killed himself when he was nine and he was 36 and he described it as, uh, as you never, you, you, you never, you never get through it. You just learn how to take, to wake up and keep moving. Um, and so I don't think it, it I think it's gonna be something that you both carry in your hearts forever. And I can only hope through a lot of tragedies that you somehow, especially even your business and now you're restarting your life that you learn how to, make a flower grow from this big pile of shit that was the worst thing that happened to you in your life. And hopefully that flower can brighten someone else's day. Well, that's what we're trying to do. Um, I've been very vocal recently. Um, I've been doing a, a few interviews um, that, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of people, there's, there's 130 on average uh, Americans a day that are committing suicide. And obviously the number that we amongst the military know is that 20, an average of 22 of them are veterans. Um, that to me screams national crisis. 
Mm-hmm. Even and five is a national crisis. Ex- exactly. I, I did the math. I, I can't remember the number offhand, but if you do um, 22 lives a day over the course of a year, um, the, the number is insane. Mm-hmm. And um, The number what, of broken t- families, the number of kids the, that never get it, hugged or dead. It just exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say is that um, just in our circumstance, um, I can't, I can't describe to you how broken, um, his suicide made me. Um, my life was drastically, um, drastically impacted by suicide. My daughters, my daughter had to bury her daddy. My mother-in-law had to bury her son, her only son. Um, you know, his grandparents had to bury their first grandchild. Um, these are all people that loved him. And there are families like that everywhere that are going through this. And um, if my, my whole perspective, especially since all this has sort of started since military.com got a hold of, of our article, if I have to relive what can only be described as, as hell, um, if I have to relive my hell so that um, that someone else's life can be affected, whether it whether a wife that's struggling, her husband's dealing with PTSD, and I can just say, "Hold on," um, you know, or if it's a husband that's that's having issues and and doesn't think that there's a way out, there is. Um, there's there's dozens and dozens of of opportunities that are out there and and i i know from from everything that jordan experienced is one of the things he struggled with was the loss of brotherhood when he got out of the military um since his suicide i have found organizations like the till valhalla project or uh, mission 22 for example which we're doing the fundraiser for um they all offer funding and programs and things for veterans that are struggling with PTSD and depression and anxiety and traumatic brain injury um, that the the all I can say is is you have to reach out to them mm-hmm. um, find that rope you have to find that rope and I I think Jordan gave up on himself, but what I, when I close my eyes and I envision, and I envision what happened to him, I see him drowning. And I see him reaching for the rope and he can't find it. And the best advice, if I could go back, would be to tell him to take a deep breath take a look at your surroundings and calmly look for that rope Mm -hmm. because when you're in a panic and you're drowning and you, you can't see further than your your nose right in front of you, you're not going to see that rope, even though it's, it's right there. Mm -hmm. Literally his entire family was that rope that he couldn't see. Exactly. And they weren't far away. Mm -hmm. They weren't far away. His his mom lives forty five minutes away, and um, his aunt lives about twenty minutes further. I mean, we're all in in the Camp Lejeune area. Everybody is is here. Um, he he was not by any means alone. He just and the irony is he's surrounded by the second largest military installation in the Marine Corps. Exactly. And he never felt more alone in his own, of his own kind. Exactly. When you think of the word legacy and and this incident on your life, have you given any thought where you want your legacy to go with you and your daughter of for impact and what you want to be remembered for? Um if you asked me that question a couple years ago, my, my answer would be very different. Um, I went to school for social work. My, my whole life revolved around adoption. I was a, an adopted child. Um, 
I interned in a foster care and adoption agency, and that was what I wanted to do, was I wanted to help um, families find children and children find families. In this tragedy, I now want to help others that can't find the help for themselves. Um, and I want my daughter to remember me for being as strong as I could be within a tragedy to still care for others, that others seek help so that they don't have to go through what they go through alone as a struggler. And so the families don't have to go through what I've gone through as a survivor. Mm -hmm. um, one of the best things I feel that we can do as individuals is to give to our community and um, there's, a, there's a whole big community of people that are struggling. And um, I want her to remember that I did what I could to reach out to that community to try to make a difference for, for others. I like that. It's, it wraps everything we just talked about in a nice box with a, a ribbon on it. And I am positive if there's a dad out there listening to them, this episode, we I hope I hope we really woke them up and can, they can take the few steps to to come home mentally and physically. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on, Sarah. This I know you hadn't done a podcast yet, but I can hardly tell because the way you craft your story and the emotions that you're sharing with us is very real and raw, and that's really what breaks down barriers for people to to feel to feel something that maybe they haven't felt in a long, long time when someone says and describes words to something that they've felt inside but couldn't put words to. And often veterans in active duty, we will, I, I, your husband was probably in no, uh, the same circumstance. He felt like he was the only one going through this. Mm -hmm. And if every episode I have, I always try to reignite the idea in a father's mind that wow, this guy has the same things that I have and I'm feeling the same way. I'm no longer new, unique and maybe now there's a solution to get through it. It's when you feel like you're the only ones having the problem. And you, you talk about community. I often repeat that for 2,000 years, men survived in a tribe. We did life together. We hunted, we grew, we, we failed. And the last 100 years, we somehow thought we could do life alone. And we now have a society that is so almost hell-bent on men not having a community or not talking about what they're feeling, that is almost the, the kryptonite to, to this problem, that in order to move to this problem, men need to step back into who we were always, men of community and tribe and men that leaned on each other to get the job done. Yeah, and I think one thing that's important to say is that that's okay. Mm-hmm it's okay to feel and it's, and it's okay to lean on somebody else. Um, I have found some of the greatest strength amongst this tragedy in women who have gone through exactly what I've gone through. And I'm not just talking about the suicide. Suicide alone is, is, is there's, there's no word there. There's no word to describe how painful and how devastating it is. Um, but in my circumstance where all of the equation was destroying the marriage to the point where we had separated, the love never stopped, but the separation was very real. It was very helpful for me to know that there were other women who were going through separations and at the same time they dealt with their, their loved one's suicide because there is nothing more damaging to yourself than feeling alone. And mm -hmm. that's when it's most important to reach out to others is when you feel alone. And when you're defining yourself by your emotions, not your actions, you're, you're, you can feel something and not have to be that emotion at the same time. And I, my heart goes out to you and your daughter and it, it, it's been a, a, say a rough week for me because I was, uh, this Monday's episode I dedicated to two, uh, soldiers that died last week in Afghanistan. And one yeah. of them was 20 years old 
with a six month old unborn child due in September. And oh. I was just like, Oh man, that child never going to know the love of a father and even know what father, who he was. And I was just like, Oh, they just ate me up. And to hear your story now. And, uh, it just stirs it all up again of, I always remind dads, the honor and the ability to go home every night and hug your kids is something that many veterans have sacrificed their lives overseas for. And it's our duty as dads to live a life worthy of that sacrifice. And it's a privilege and not every dad got to come home and do it. And we need to remember that because we did. So we need to make sure we show up the best damn father we can be. Absolutely. And um, you can't be replaced. If people want to connect with you after after this episode, where is the best place to get a hold of you? Um, well, we have a website. It's craftsbysarahmichael.com. Um, we have emails on there. Um, I think it's important to say that my, my name is spelt with two R's. Uh, lots of people are trying to get in touch with us, and they're spelling my name with one R. It's two R's. Um, but uh, craftsbysarahandmichael uh, at gmail.com is our, is our email address. Um, we have a Facebook page. I have a personal Facebook page. Um, I have been very open on um, the the pages that I'm on with with the women, the surviving women, or the the wives dealing with husbands with PTSD. Um, that I am always an ear to listen, um, mm. and I extend that to um, to your viewers. That if if anybody needs to confide in me, I have absolutely no problem taking time to, to listen. Um, cause it's important that, um, people know that they're, that they're cared for, even if it's by a stranger. Um, we have to care for each other as, as people and as, um, as a community, especially the military community. I know that Jordan felt very alone when he got out of the military. And I don't think that, um, I think that the military is sort of, given a, a real hard rap after they, after they get out. And it's important to know that they still have a community of, of brothers and sisters that, um, that are there to listen. Mm-hmm. So it's, you, you hit it right there on the head of, I often say people are telling me like, what's my value to people. And I often say right now at this stage of my business, I am the friend that I wish I had five years ago and I'll always open my door, my ear, my conversation to whatever it is, because being the friend that you wish you had is the best thing that the gifts that I can offer right now. And that's what you're doing is the being the friend that you wish you had back then to someone that may be in that same situation now. And hopefully you can be the flashlight or the rope that that military spouse maybe needs to provide that, that rope to their spouse. Absolutely. That's what it's, that's what it's all about. Like I said, if I, if I have to relive mine so that, so that someone else can, can be saved or a family be saved, um, that's what it's all about. Well, Sarah, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk tonight and I look forward to sharing this episode with the listeners and I just can't tell you how much I appreciate this conversation we just had. Oh, I'm so glad that we had it. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap. And thank you for listening to today's show, and I really hope you enjoyed it. The lifeblood of any new podcast are the reviews. If you haven't reviewed the podcast yet on iTunes, I would really appreciate it, and you will help us get the message out to even more military veteran dads. As John Maxwell says, if there is hope in the future, there is power in the present. Dads, it's time to come home.